You're listening to episode 257 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of friends and comic book journalists and friends, excuse me, comic book journalists Hmm. and friends, who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Interesting. You know, Pete last week got it wrong, too. Mm -hmm. And he's not here. And are you going to be here next week? Yeah. Well, if you mess up the intro to the show, maybe you won't. Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe you get cut if you mess up the intro to the show. Yeah. Or maybe you just have to go in messing it up and meaning it like the way I have. Doing it intentionally. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't I don't try to fail. I simply fail to try. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just a failure, so. <laughs> All right. Uh, so today it's Kale and I. Uh, some refer to us as the dynamic duo. The old reliables. There you go. Uh, the other three jokers are out living their lives, but Kale and I have no lives. And so here we are doing the show for you guys, as always. Uh, thank you for being here, Kale. Hey, it's my pleasure. Is no, it? It's not. No, it's yeah. not. Let's let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> I'm here because I signed a contract six years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally true. <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, you know what? We do have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, we've got a lot going on. We're going to be talking about the oral history of the New Fifty Two that Polygon published this week. Mm. That has everybody in the tizzy. Uh, Including the brass at DC, I've got a story about that. Oh, can't wait! Yeah, uh, we've got. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Venom. Let there be carnage. It comes out this week. Uh, I'm not sure how much buzz is out there about this movie, but it is happening. Um, and the way that it's being promoted by Sony is uh, is is very reminiscent of uh, something we've seen before. And Jonathan Hickman is talking about. How he feels about the end of his time as a member of the uh, the the group of writers and creators working on X Men and some of his regrets. And in the main topic, we're going to be discussing Disney and Marvel fighting to retain the rights to their iconic characters. Uh, they're under attack this week uh, from various sources, so um, they're putting their gloves on to step into court to this fight multi- off. Yeah. This multi-billion dollar corporation? Ugh, how will they ever survive? Who knows? All that and more as we get into this episode of the Comics Pals. Before we move forward, I do want to let you guys know how you can support the show. Make sure that you are leaving us a like, a follow, a rating, a review, wherever you're listening. If that's YouTube, subscribe for free to our channel, youtube.com slash thecomicspals. Like the video, share it with your friends. All of that is free to do, and it helps us out a lot more than it costs you. If you want to write to us, you can do so at thecomicspals at gmail.com. You can write in with your thoughts about anything that we talk about on this episode or anything else you're thinking about. Are you thinking about what you ate for dinner? Uh, write in. Are you thinking about Phil in the quiet of, your, of the night in your room? <laughs> Uh, don't write in. Uh, uh, you know what? You go ahead and write in about that. <laughs> oh man, no, that's well, what. That'll be the start of our OnlyFans. Is uh, is the 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 fill fiction, the naughty fill fiction. 
Well, Phil has a girlfriend now, so you might not want to write in because that could cause problems at home. What if it's her? What if she's writing the naughty Phil fiction and sending well, it in? now we have the basis for an OnlyFans. All right. Now you're talking. Now you're cooking with gas. Uh, so this Tuesday, our book club for Rick Remender's Low comes out. Rick Remender, Greg Ticini. Uh, we will be dropping that this Tuesday. Um, that was a, a massive labor of love on my part. I adore that series so, so much. I've sung its praises several times. It's one of my favorite pieces of fiction ever. And uh, I really implore you all to check it out. At least check out our conversation about it. And if you like that, then go buy it. Um, it's fully collected now and done. And it's only 26 issues, which in the grand scheme of comics is not that many. So uh, I think it's worth your time if you go pick it up. The first trade is only 10 bucks uh, through Image. So you can at least get that and, and jump on board. Uh, so we've got that coming out on Tuesday. Uh, listen to our reviews for comics. If you're wondering what we think about any particular books that drop, uh, Wednesdays is our Image reviews. This week we're reviewing Spawn, uh, Spawn 322. Um, and then on the Marvel DC side, don't know what we're going to review other than Inferno. So uh, you can hear our thoughts about Inferno number one over there. Does that start this week? Yeah. Is the trial of Magneto already finished? No. That's only two, two issues deep. That's what I thought. Ooh. Don't get it at all. Don't well. get it at all. <laughs> that's, that's Marvel that's, publishing for you. That's probably what Jonathan Hickman regrets. <laughs> I'm sure it's one of them. In fact, I can guarantee you it's one of them based on the way he talked. And we'll get into that. Um, We've got a whole load, a a mailbag, if you will, uh, of of comments from the listeners this week. So, uh, Kale, why don't you start us off? So, Kilgore Trout wrote in on the... Uh, comments for episode 256 he said uh, it's really starting to feel like diamond is the blockbuster of the comic book industry i can't see a future with them still in the picture we're all watching a slow death and if you ask me it could not have come sooner gosh i don't know if i would even call it slow uh it's a great point (laughs) you know it started during the pandemic Basically, it kicked off right when the pandemic kicked off mm-hmm. by DC jumping ship, and now it's just been like a free fall. Uh, it's it's pretty rough. But Diamond doesn't just do uh, comics distribution, yeah. Uh, so they'll probably be okay. They just have to restructure and change the way they do business. Um, I don't know that. Diamond is going to go out of business, but they just, they're just not going to be what they are to comics. Yeah. And my understanding is that the international deals still right. exist. So, uh, that probably won't change worldwide too soon. Yeah. Um, and it's not, I don't know. I don't know if I consider it to be sad or not. Uh, it's business, you know, it, it, it's just business. And if you make, Poor decisions in business. Steve Jeppy. Steve Jeppy. Eventually they come back to bite you, you know. Um, and even if you don't make poor decisions in business, 
things can happen. That's the way it works. So, you know, I'm not shedding tears about it. And quite frankly, you know, I was wrong. Uh, last year, I said that, you know, DC leaving Diamond was a bad omen for the industry. And nothing bad has happened uh, as far as that goes. Not yet. We haven't seen a negative effect come from that. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, it's it's in that weird spot of, of like, Marvel and DC aren't the industry, but they're the movers and shakers for sure. Um, and you know, I think as long as as long as there are comics still at Diamond, they're gonna be around. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, continue. Uh, definitely not. Sean Soapbox says Pete and Bessie, the Wiki Warlock. So this is, of course, in reference to Pete using Wikipedia to determine uh, the Nothing. whether or not "What If" was over with episode <laughs> six, which is hilarious to me. I said this on our "What If" review. If you don't know, we we review "What If" every single week in our We Watch series. But I said this there: the reason that Wiki said that the show was over with six episodes is because. I'm sure what Pete did was he looked at the episode chart, saw that it ended with six, and said, oh, it must be over. They don't update it until the episodes roll out because no one knows what the next episode is until like a couple of days before. That's when, you know, Marvel has been teasing this stuff. Ugh. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. <laughs> and isn't it funny because isn't Pete like a journalist? Like, didn't he go to school for... Yeah, like, I think he did. Wait, yeah, that's like the first rule. You don't go to Wikipedia for your answers, dude. That's and that's what I said. Even at school, they tell you not to trust Wikipedia. Yeah, I mean it's peer reviewed and they're on top of it, but like, well, uh, Langston Brown wrote in and said, "Hey guys, what's easier to understand, Alan Moore Swamp Thing or Sandman? Also, which is better?" Ooh. That's that's an interesting question. What's your take, man? Have you read both? I have read about actually I've I've read about as much of uh both. So, I've read four volumes of Alan Moore Swamp Thing, probably three or four of Sandman. Um so boy, that's tough. Um I mean, I've got crap. an answer. Yeah, go ahead. So I've read the exact same amount of both, which encompasses what we have read for the book clubs we did for each series. If you want to listen to those, go check them out. And I, I will say up front, I don't think that either one of them is terribly complicated. Uh, I think that their stature and status as classics creates a monolith in your mind that I don't think really exists when you engage with the stories. I think Sandman <laughs> might be more uh, a little bit more complicated just because of the, the concepts that it's dealing with. Yeah. It can be a little bit tough to wrap your head around at first. But I wouldn't let any of that or any of the commentary about the books uh, intimidate you in any way. They're stories. And they're not um, they're not they're not mazes. They're, 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 they're accessible books. 
They're not steeped in continuity that you can't penetrate. Nothing like that. In fact, Sandman, or not Sandman, uh, Swamp Thing had already existed as a character, had a run going on before, but but the way that um, that Alan Moore jumps into it, uh, it, it almost felt like a clean slate in a lot of ways. Like, I really didn't have a ton of questions about what happened before because it wasn't that relevant. Like you kind of just get in on what Alan's doing and that's it. And if you need to know something, it gets filled in. Yeah. I think, I think it, honestly, I think they both as similar as they are. I think they're both pretty different. Um, I think, you know, while Swamp Thing is, uh, I believe it's still Vertigo, but it's still it's still a superhero book. I think it's as removed from superheroes as it could possibly be. But it's still sort of layered in that genre. Whereas Sandman, to me, reads as more sort of horror literature. And I think it goes a little bit harder in the paint in horror. Um, especially with like the the second volume and the the serial killer convention or whatever. Um, so you know, and and I can't speak to the later volumes. My understanding is that it does kind of fall off in quality after a certain amount of time. But, um, I yeah, I think they both have a lot of layers if you want to look for them. But if you're just looking for a really good read, um. I think that, you know, you could really go out and pick up either and you'd be fine. I was going to give a, a flippant off-the-cuff answer to piss off Marco, but genuinely I think I think Swamp Thing might be better. <laughs> I think I enjoyed I think I enjoyed Swamp Thing more, uh, but yeah. that could be related to my, you know, history with the character. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to go back to them, though. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that down the road for sure. Yeah, I think Sandman's a little bit slower of a start, and it sort of takes a second to figure out what it is. But when it hits, it hits. Whereas Alan Moore knows what he wants to do with Swamp Thing pretty much out of the gate, it feels like. Yeah. Uh, so moving forward, we got some comments on King Spawn, uh, our King Spawn number two review, Ninja John Gotti wrote in and said king spawn is still going to sell millions so it does not matter what anyone says and talking and promoting it is just boosting sales so he's mad they're damn mad. you right you right dog i wasn't on the review for king spawn i'm gonna assume that you guys did not like it i think that's probably correct yeah yeah so it sounds like ninja john Gotti is responding to that uh I don't see your point. <laughs> like, if they didn't like the book, they didn't like the book. So that's what a review is, right? Like, no one's... I, I didn't hear the review, so I, I guess I can't say for what I'm about to say is a fact. But I'm going to assume that no one said, oh, this shouldn't exist, or this shouldn't sell, or something like that. I'm sure they said, we don't like this. And so... It's not like we're against Spawn. Like, we're not, like, anti-Spawn. Spawn's fine. It's cool. I personally really like Spawn. 
and that's I, cool. Yeah, I want to see it thrive, but that doesn't yeah. mean that we have to like every issue of the book. Don't be insane. We don't like most issues of the book, but like Spawn's cool. <laughs> Why wouldn't we want Spawn to succeed? Yeah, I, I I read Spawn the main series every month, and I have been for like the entire summer. It's not very good, but I like it anyway. It is what it is. You know, like our review for that will be out Wednesday. You can comment on that. Spoiler alert. I don't have great things to say. It's probably going to be pretty similar to what it was last week. Yeah. So take <laughs> it easy, John Gotti. Excuse me, Ninja John Gotti. Uh, <laughs> Alex C. wrote in and said, Baby Spawn was kind of already done in the Spawn Kills Everyone comic miniseries. Makes absolute sense, Alex C. Take the next one. Uh, Power Grid Comics says, I think Spawn has been like this from the start, and Todd has been writing the same for years. With Spawn, you know what you're getting. You're not crazy. Spawn is not for everyone, but to understand most of what's going on, to understand more of what's going on, you need to have read Spawn before. Kincaid's first appearance was uh, issue 5 and Reborn in Hell in issue 8. Great video, by the way. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, Appreciate the history lesson for those who needed it. Um, I didn't. I. I, And again, like, I. I don't think that it matters. You know, if um, people come into the book and don't know all the history of 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 that kind of stuff, like. Yeah. I yeah I think I I was able to add the Kincaid bit at the end. Just because I thought that was kind of cool the way they were bringing him back. Yeah. Uh, and I think I said I wasn't sure if he'd been brought back before. Um, I'm sh- I, I know I've read issue eight, so I'm sure I knew he was reborn in hell. But I, I guess I don't necessarily consider that being brought back. You know, I was thinking brought back onto Earth to fuck around with Spawn. Right. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know what, man? Uh we we we're happy to be to be reading spawn primarily because of all the interaction we get but i'm not kidding when i tell you like i love king spawn i think that book is is actually good sean lewis i think is doing a really good job there um on primordial number one we got a comment from well actually kale why don't you take this from uh manuel amaro barbosa philho not bad i like i liked primordial number one i'll surely buy number two sweet this person actually ended up joining our discord which is really cool uh you should too should come hang out with us on our discord we've got a link in the description of every uh every uh episode that we drop so come hang out with us yeah primordial number one was great we reviewed it very well um it was a it was a really really fun time uh jeff lemire doing good stuff uh, is it Manny? Yeah. Somehow Manny? Oh, wow. oh no, yeah, no, 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 no. Not, not. Oh, that's not, not him? Not, no, no, no. It's, um, oh, okay. it's, uh, Manoel. Mano-E-U-L on the Discord. Uh, check oh, the introductions see. tab. You'll see him there. Uh, meanwhile, Snake of Talons wrote in and said, I loved this book. Lemire and Sorrentino are on a different level when they work together. So glad my brother told me to go check out this, to go check this out. Have any of the pals read Gideon Falls? I have not. I have not either. I think Marco has, I think. 
Um, I know Lemire and Sorrentino on uh, their New 52 Green Arrow run. And, man, they were killer. That's uh, that's one New 52 uh, collection that I would very much like to, to get. Do you know if it is collected? Um, I think it is in just, like, the regular trades. I don't know if it's fully... Actually, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Wow. It's, yeah, very high, high, high prey. Up there with, like, Fractions Hawkeye, I think. Okay. It's considered, like, a a seminal run for Green Arrow. Why don't you read this next comment? Uh, Snake of Talons also says, Tyler Seaman's story started, and I had deja vu. Weird place... (laughs) Uh, to have deja vu, but <laughs> I was like, I must have already watched this episode. Lol. Now I don't know if that is a reference to him having told this story elsewhere, potentially on the long box. And I was on the episode that uh, Snake of Talons is commenting on, and I don't remember a, a story, a semen story. Um. I was watching wrestling while we were doing the episode, so it's possible that I glossed over that. Um, I hear that word and I just tune out. I just, I just dissociate. But um, <laughs> I just, I thank you, <laughs> Talons. I appreciate you writing in, man, uh, and I appreciate Tyler's wild stories. The stories that he tells off the air are so much crazier, and that's the thing. I know so yeah. much about Tyler that yeah. I shouldn't even know, but I'm happy I do. Uh, and then we, we actually got a couple of emails, which is pretty cool. Uh, so we got one from Christian who said, hey, guys, don't really have any X-Books. This is in reference, I believe, to our review from this past week where we, where we talked about um, uh, X-Men uh, Onslaught Revelation and X-Men number three. And we asked what people were thinking about the X-Books that were, that were out. So I think that's what they're referencing. Um, but... Uh, Hey guys, don't really have any X-Men books, but interested in Emma Frost and magic more than the other mutants. Just bought Weed and Astonishing for Emma, since Morrison New X-Men is so pricey, and deciding what to buy for magic, but more of a fan of her looks from 2000s going forward. Any good suggestions for either of these ladies? First of all, before we answer, thank you for writing in. Always appreciate getting an email. It's so cool when you guys hit us up in that way. And never heard from you before, so welcome. Love that. Uh, I have answers for both of them, Kale. If you have one and you're hot with, go for it. Um, I was just gonna, I was gonna suggest for magic. You you might as well go um, all all the way back um, to the New Mutants. I believe it's uh, Bill Sienkiewicz on on art. Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz. Um, uh, that is a, uh, a good and like, uh, tremendous starting point for the character. Um, so I, I mean, if you like, if you like magic, I, there's not too much of a reason not to go back for, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that makes sense. Uh, he, they, they do mention, uh, liking a fan of Magic's looks from the 2000s going forward, uh, yeah. I've got a reference uh, or a pick rather from that era. Uh, mm. Now, I 
I I'm struggling to remember the name of the title. I think it's I think it's New X Men. I think it's New X Men. It was after Morrison's run on the book where they made it more about the young, the young X Men, the youth like um um uh Ma- Magic is- was there um. God, she's one of my favorites. What is her name? Oh my goodness. I can't believe I'm that blanking. Is, that is not my era of X-Men. Yeah, yeah. Uh it was Craig Kyle and Christopher Yost. They took over. I really, really loved their their run. I was such a fan of that. In fact, that was the first that was the first time that I really like fell in love with a run on X-Men. Because I didn't, I, I was fresh to comics. This was like 2005, 2006. I didn't know much. And so I was just buying things. And I don't know why I bought this. Um, but I, I think maybe the cover looked cool. But I bought the collections for this run on New Mutants. And it featured Elixir. Um, Prodigy was on that team. Surge. I love Surge. And she doesn't appear in the comics. I never see her. I love Surge. She was my favorite of all these mm. characters by far. Um, uh, so, and then also we had uh, Hellion was was on this in this book. This was the Hellion Squad that Emma Frost ran. So, if you're looking for a book that actually features both of these characters, um, th- this New Mutants run would definitely be for you. Um, Mercury was in this book. Uh, Rock Slide, Dust, a lot of the characters who are running around in the X-Men books now got their start here in terms of prominence. So um, I highly recommend this uh, this run. Um, and as far as Emma goes, honestly, like I understand that the new mutants or new X-Men run by Morrison is pricey, but I think to understand Emma right now, uh, you really do have to read that. Because the first issue or so really sets the stage for where she comes from now. Why she has decided to put a white hat on uh, and, and and be on the side of good. And really has stuck that way. Besides, besides her wardrobe. Well, listen. She could look good in black. She does uh, hey, look good in listen, black. She had a black I'm not costume. arguing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I... Uh, I, you know, Christian, obviously, I don't know your buying habits if you're a – it seems you're a physical person. But if you're – if you don't mind digital, I know that Morrison's new X-Men stuff is on um, Comixology. And I'm sure it's got to be on uh, Marvel Unlimited um, at this point as well with their revamp or whatever. Uh, which It's funny you, you say all that, Sean, because I fairly recently tried to read it um, – and I couldn't get past the first issue. And I'm a I'm a big Gmo fan. Whoa! I just I don't know if it I just wasn't in the space. Um, you know, when I get into stuff, I have to I have to really be in the mood for it. And it just was not hitting me. Mm. I haven't read new X Men in a while, but I do remember that the well, in my eyes, anyways, it starts off really great, and it gets mm. a little weird. The, the further it goes on. Yeah. And I always despised, the, I think it was the last issue, the one that's like a look forward. Um, is that uh, Silvestri? 
is on some of that. Might be, yeah, yeah. I think I have consistently read that issue somehow. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I know exactly what, what you're talking about. Well, Christian, hopefully that answers your question. Um, feel free to write in with, um, with other questions or thoughts, and I'm going to email you with a more detailed response. Uh, but, Kale, why don't you take on this last email that we got? Email from Sean. Sean, you you started the podcast. You know, why don't you just ask the question? It's not me. It's right here. It's, you have a microphone in front of your face. It's not me. Just ask the question. I, I It's not me. What can I tell you? It's my it's, they, spelled, they spelled your name correctly and everything. Uh, still love the podcast, <laughs> but I've fallen behind in my reading this month. Do I need to read Future State? Is there anything I should read before Joel Jones' Wonder Girl? So, um, that's okay. Thank you for loving the podcast. It's okay to fall behind. I fall behind very regularly. Uh, do you need to read Future State? I don't think you do. I think that Future State being the way they're, the way they've touted it as a future, a potential future invalidates it in that regard. Um, now, there are certain elements of Future State that are playing out now. Um, like, for example, in Batman, we're very clearly going towards Future State. In fact, they just started the new event in Batman called Fear State. And Fear State is the way that we're getting to the Future State of Batman. Um, and then we, of course, know that there's a new Batman... Uh, that book just started, I Am Batman by John Ridley. Um, that features uh, one of the Fox kids. I, forget, I always forget their name. Jace Fox. Yeah. Jace Fox is, yeah. is, is Batman in that series. And that was teased in Future State as well. So if you care about seeing where they end up, then sure. Uh, I personally did not read much Future State and I feel comfortable with that choice. So, yeah. And then as far as uh, anything to read before Wonder Girl, uh, there was a fierce, a future state series about um, Yara Flores or Yara Flor that gives you an idea of who this character is going into Joel Jones's run. So if you're curious about that, then that would be a good pickup. I read the first issue of that and I didn't think it was very good. So if you want to read it for the art, obviously Joel Jones' art is incredible, but story-wise it's very skippable. If you want to know what happened, go on Wikipedia. That will save you a few bucks and get you right where you need to be to pick up the run that's happening now. Or if you want something a little more entertaining but wholly untrue, go to Wikipedia and Pete will tell you the whole uh, future state synopsis. Well, you can just you can just actually even easier go on Twitter at loud underscore Pete. Uh, ask Pete a question. He will literally never tell you he doesn't know. He will just yep. make something up. He'll monologue for hours. <laughs> Love you, Pete. Um, <laughs> I wanna I wanna get into the palace pools, but before we do that, we, there's something that we just have to talk about. So this week, uh, one of my favorite writers, 
came under fire. I think this guy is a, is a total sweetheart, good dude, and he came under fire. And I'm talking about Tom Taylor. Did you see anything about Tom Taylor Taylor this week, Kale? No. Okay. So Tom Taylor has been getting attacked all week long for his treatment, quote unquote, of Barbara Gordon. Oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Tom Taylor shared a, a tweet that featured both of his books that were dropping. It was Nightwing 84 and it was Batman the Detective. And so someone commented and said, hey, Tom, why did you treat Babs as if she can do less as Oracle and is stunted by the role? Care to share with the class, Tom? Is it your ableism showing? Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so some people uh, did piggyback off of that to attack Tom. And there was there was a lot of criticism uh, lobbed his way for, you know, for this. And some people came to his defense. A lot of people came to his defense. In fact, I would argue more people came to his defense than did not. Mm. Um Someone said, anyways, congratulations to at Tom Taylor made for forever having the legacy as that ableist writer. Sir, I know you are never going to understand why what you are doing is wrong, but I hope you understand it will follow you even beyond your grave. Mm, I bet it won't. And Tom Taylor said, it's been a day, that's for sure. In response to everything that's been going on. I have to say... That comic book fans, not unique because there are a lot of fans like this, but I, I see it a lot in comics. We're, they're crazy. They're crazy. <laughs> now, the fans that listen to this show, the people that listen to this show and are fans of comics, you guys are all cool. You guys in our Discord are cool. The guys that write in are cool. The people that write in are cool. But the people who go on Twitter and attack creators for stuff that by and large, has nothing to do with them. And even if it does, like, let's say Tom Taylor was the one. This isn't true. But let's say Tom Taylor was the one who said, you know what, I need to take Barbara out of the wheelchair, out of the Oracle role, because she's got to she's gotta get into the costume to go fight. Let's say that was his choice. Does that make him ableist? No, it doesn't make him ableist. That's insane. I I don't get it. <laughs> like like a DC editor back, you know, when the killing joke happened, literally told Alan Moore to cripple the bitch. I like I don't I don't get it. I just don't I don't get it. Like Tom Taylor has made it specifically so that Barbara Gordon has it both ways. The suit she's wearing is, you know, it's 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 uh it's got like a skeleton or whatever so that she can, you know, fight without being in pain or whatever and when she's not in that suit, she is Oracle. I believe she's in the wheelchair. I yes. I can't Yeah. Yeah. So like I mean it's 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 both. And and by the way, Tom Taylor was not the first person to take her out of the chair. That was Gail yeah. Simone. 
Gail Simone was the one who came up with the idea of a, you know, some type of whatever, whatever like a chip or something. Like an implant. Yeah, an implant yeah. that allows her to be able to, you know, stand and do and do her thing. But as we have learned, um, you know, there's still pain associated and that's not a permanent solution. So does that make her not disabled? Of course she's still disabled. She still has to be in a wheelchair most of her life. She just has the luxury due to her being a person who is involved with a billionaire who has the technology to help her live her life that she can do this. It's ridiculous. Is she less uh, a, a, a person because she's able to get out of her wheelchair? Is that not a good thing for her? Like if you care about the character, right? Beyond the representation aspect that everybody goes crazy about. Wouldn't it be better for her as a character to be able to get out of her wheelchair and walk and do the things that she does? Wouldn't that be better? I, but then again, is that an ableist view? No, because literally being disabled is not good for you. That sucks. It's awful that people have to have that life. It's not good. Now, you make the most of it. You do your best. And I'm sad that that happens. But when you are stuck in a wheelchair because of something that happened to you, that's not positive. You have to make it into a positive. You have to live life despite that. But it's, I mean, am I crazy? I, I, I genuinely don't know. I, that's, I don't quite get it. Like, there's the part of me that wants to agree, but there's also the part of me that's like, you know, even, you know, not just looking at the people who are in wheelchairs, for instance, you know, who, who are in that circumstance because of an accident, but then you also have the people who are in that circumstance because of, of birth or whatever. Like, is, is that bad? No, it's not, I mean, it's not bad. They're not bad. It's not a reflection of them, but yeah, yeah. It's not ideal. Certainly being able to not being able to walk, right. It's called a disability, right? It, that right. that that is a negative term, right? The dis part of that that's negative, right? We all understand English, so that means that it is a neg. It's it's a negative, right? So being disabled is not like a good thing, you know. It's it, it is what it is. That's the life that you're living. But I think mm. in my mind, and I feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. That people would prefer not to be disabled, right? Like you would, it, like that would be better. So, if that is the case, and again, if you if you write in and you tell me, Sean, you're insane, let's talk about that. Sure, but this is how I think. This is how I feel. Okay. So, in my mind, if that is true, then Barbara Gordon being able to walk would be a positive thing. And if you like the character and care about her, that's what you would want to see. Not for her to be wheelchair-bound permanently as a form of representation. Also, the the argument was made that Barbara Gordon is the most uh, prominent disabled uh, superhero. And that 
taking her out of the chair was negating that. Well, what about Professor Xavier? I, I never see any type of negative commentary about the fact that this guy is in his chair, out of his chair, nonstop. That's funny you say that. I actually did. It wasn't much more than a snarky comment, but I did see something this week that said something along those lines. And my thing is, we have to stop attaching ourselves to these characters and making them reflective of who we are as people. Barbara Gordon, as a character, is going to grow and change and evolve. She did not start in comics as a disabled person. It just didn't, that's just not the case. Hmm. Um, and there will be plenty of instances where she is portrayed as not disabled. So is it ableist that she will be not wheelchair bound in the movie that they're making? Even though she is in the comics? Hmm. It gets so complicated because you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. She's not representative of anything other than just that character. As Kale pointed out, them putting her in a wheelchair was not to make you happy. That was actually mm. in service of a story that other than that instance had nothing to do with her at all. They made something positive out of a negative mm. by making her the champion that she has become. So leave Tom Taylor the hell alone. That that part I can wholly agree with. Like none of this is his fault. He's doing the best he can, and I mean, we could have had Barbara Gordon completely erased. Like <laughs> that she's up and she's doing things, even as Oracle or Batgirl. Like it's cool. Yeah. I I would be really interested to hear. Uh, from the disabled, the the handicap community, the Batgirl community, the Oracle community, about this subject, like is is the disability, like Sean says, is it something that's taking away? Is it you know? Uh, are there other terms? Are there better terms? Are there? I w I, I would really like to hear that perspective. Um, I find the conversation fascinating, not necessarily on the shitty end of, you know, attacking Tom Taylor, but I would really like to hear it. If you know someone, if you are someone, please write into uh, the comic the comicspals at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at the comicspals. Um, truly, uh, in good faith, I would really love to hear your perspective. So I just looked up what ableism means because. I was curious. And so um, the definition that I found is ableism is defined as discrimination or social prejudice against people with disabilities based on the belief that typical abilities are superior. It can manifest as an attitude stereotype or an outright offensive comment or behavior. The belief that typical abilities are superior. So I think, I think, obviously this isn't a judgment, but I think that's where like your, your, perspective would be considered ableist mm -hmm. i again i i would really love to hear the perspective of of someone in that situation i because my like my understanding of it is like because i wear glasses i'm disabled it's a disability yeah it's but but like 
Is it isn't it better to have great vision than to need glasses? Yeah, I mean, I would like to not have glasses. But yeah, I don't know. I I really don't know. Like, do you I guess that's the thing. Is it it's not a you know, it's a case of treating people like human beings right. no matter what they are, right? right? And that's <laughs> I, I I guess that's where the mix-up comes is that they feel left out and not treated as human beings because they don't have that representation. And that that is messed up. The yeah. being mistreated for whatever differences, you know, Kale has glasses, he's disabled in that regard. Um, but no one is going to treat Kale any differently because he has glasses. Maybe that maybe in 5th grade, but like now that's not going to happen. And if you treat people differently because they're in a wheelchair or whatever, well you're shitty. But I don't think that that means that um, you know, Tom Taylor's a shit because he is writing Batgirl not in her wheelchair. Like let's yeah. let's let's get over that and let's let's you know let's be serious. There are a lot of real legitimate problems in the world. That ain't one of them. Uh, let's jump into the. I mean, what I'm what I was referring to is Tom Taylor, not ableism. Ableism is a problem in the world. Tom Taylor <laughs> is not a problem in the world. Um, <laughs> let's jump into the pals, dude. I'm I'm prepared. If if you feel like I'm being a dick about it, write in. I you know sure why not. Um, so Kale Chills Headlopper Volume Four for the pals. So uh, if you're a long time listener to the fans, uh, what? If you're a long time listener of the show, <laughs> it's been a while since I've uh, plugged Headlopper, but uh, we're only on Volume Four. I've been doing this for sixteen thousand years. It's only on volume four. Um, Andrew McLean, I think, does this book uh, basically by himself. This volume is uh, colored by Jordi Belair. But uh, finally, volume four. Uh, Norgal and Agatha, the headless blue witch, uh, are going up to fight God. What? They're, they're looking for an invisible staircase. Uh, atop which sits Mulgrid the All-Knowing. So, do you know anything about Headlopper? No, nothing. Head- Headlopper is a fantasy series about a guy similar, I would say, similar to, like, Conan, Conan the Barbarian. Mm. But he goes around and he's, like, the best at chopping off heads. <laughs> and he carries around the head of Agatha the Blue Witch, who I guess at one point was the most powerful being ever but he cut her head off so he's got all this power and everybody's coming at him to get the head of agatha the blue witch Mm. so now i guess they're going to fight god wow so sweet baller that sounds like fun it's a a great series i think the i think the art is so much fun where's the anime for that it's gotta surely it's coming yeah uh, that wasn't all, though. You also chose Ha Ha, the Sad Clown Stories trait. Yeah. Uh, so this was just described to me as a sad, a sad clown anthology. Um, I was under the impression it was a horror, but looking at the 
the synopsis, I'm not entirely convinced that's what it is, uh, but uh, I will read it. Haha ha is a genre-jumping, throat-lumping look at the sad, scary, hilarious life of those who get pl- paid to play the fool. But these ain't your typical jokers. Um, and it's uh, each issue is drawn by uh, different people. So we have uh, Vanessa Del Rey uh, from Redlands, uh, Gabriel Walta, um, and Roger Langui- uh, Langridge, uh, and several several others. Uh, I was especially pumped to see Gabriel Walta did yeah. did a chapter. So yeah, I'm I'm pumped as hell about this. That's sick. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, and for me, I chose. I think there's only one book worth caring about this week inferno number one uh this is this is it this is how the saga that started with uh house and powers will end for jonathan hickman um i have a lot of frustration going into this we're going to talk about that a little later on um but as far as the series itself is concerned i couldn't be more excited Jonathan Hickman is one of the best writers, I think, working right now in comics. And he has shown a unique understanding of the X-Men. And has presented them in a way that we really have not ever seen before. And that's special. I think that the way we talk about other classic runs with um, with different characters, like I think the way we talk about... Uh, Grant Morrison's X-Men, I think about the way we even talk about Grant Morrison's Batman. Um, Mm. You know, I think this will be in that type of conversation. Um, At least I hope it will be. And there are some things that might prevent that, but we'll talk about that also a little later. Couldn't be more excited. Each of these issues will be oversized. I think they're 40 40 pages each. And the first one Mm. is drawn by Valerio Schiti with each additional one being drawn by a different artist. So, hmm. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, have you heard the Black Monday Murders is coming back? Ooh, nice! I was on that for a while, but I dropped off. I, it sounds like Jonathan Hickman did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a busy guy. Uh, got a Substack now. Hmm. Did you know that Grant Morrison appeared on uh, video? I believe, yeah, on video during. Uh, like um, some type of thing that Jonathan Hickman had for his Substack. No. Yeah. Man, I, I, I wish I had the money to support all these creators like this. It's so frustrating. I think I said this when we talked about the Substack thing, but like, it's the it's similar to the the streaming wars or whatever. It's like you you just you can't pay for all of them. You know, um, I'm only on Scott Snyder's because he's got, you know, the school or whatever. Um, man, I bet Hickman's is good. Yeah, I think it's probably awesome. I'm also similarly only subscribed to Scott Snyder's and that's all I'm going to do. Um, mm-hmm. It's unfortunate because I would love to see what goes on in the mind of Jonathan Hickman. Um, but I just can't see that being a thing I want to do. Like I already have several streaming services. How how much am I going to pay for? That's 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 why I think the Substack thing is a little bit. I don't know. It's it's cool. I'm glad that these creators have another revenue stream and all that. And they're yeah. you know for 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 fans who are partaking, like 
at least as far as the Scott Snyder one goes, and I'm sure it's similar for Hickman, you are getting a lot out of it. Um, mm. But and and with and in the case of Hickman, you're actually getting comics. Scott Snyder, you're not even getting comics. Um, yeah, but with Snyder, like he's offering something completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I just meant yeah. like you're getting like objective value. Like you're yeah. you're paying seven dollars, you're getting you know a comic. Um, yeah. It's cool that he's got that going on. I wish I could be involved, but Netflix is a thing, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> uh, so yeah, maybe maybe down the road I'll buy it and then like see everything, you know. Mm. I think that's what Marco said he was going to do, but um, he's not going to remember. No, he's not going to remember. He doesn't even care about Jonathan Hickman. Doesn't even care about his wife. Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, let's talk about. The New 52. The New 52 has been on my mind a lot this year, as I'm sure mm. it's been on the minds of many others, clearly, because people can't stop writing articles about it. Uh, this is the 10-year anniversary of the New 52 this this year. Uh, it began in August, August 31st, uh, twenty August 31st, 2011, was when uh, Justice League number one released, which was the kickoff of the New 52. And the New 52 has an interesting legacy in history because for a lot of people who are fans of, of DC now, that was their starting point, mm-hmm. uh, at least as far as comics go. And if it wasn't, in my case, it wasn't the start of my reading of DC, it was the start of my love for DC comics because prior to that, there was stuff that I was reading, um, primarily Batman by Morrison. The other stuff mostly felt impenetrable. If it wasn't Batman or Green Lantern, I couldn't really get into it because it was just there was so much history attached. And while there's the same truth for Marvel comics, for some reason Marvel books felt more um more welcoming. I don't know why that is. But I was able to connect easier easier to Marvel. Like for example, Final Crisis, tried to read that, I I didn't understand it. Well, yeah. It was an event, to be fair, but it's, I mean, it's yeah, it's that was Morrison at his Morrisoniest. There, there. there, yeah, that was Morrison at their Morrisoniest. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, in late late DC. Yeah, I read that recently again and uh, didn't love it. Still don't get it. No. <laughs> but. Uh, Again, a lot of people came into DC through the New 52, and it accomplished its goal in that regard of being an entry point, of being more palatable for people who wanted to read DC Comics but just couldn't find their way in. Dan Didio notoriously kind of wanted to marvelize the DC Universe, and I think they did that. Uh, Mm. uh, Kevin, you made a face. It distracted me. What's the face? I just I. What does that mean? Oh, he wanted to marvelize it. it me- I'm, I'm just, I'm just not sure what that means. It means that he wanted Marvel comics to feel fresh and hip and younger skewing and oh okay yeah all that good stuff yeah all right I gotcha. So yeah, I think that that happened, and I think in the case of Batman, uh, Superman. Green Lantern, you know, these characters, these were the books that were super successful. 
You know, mm. um, I think when you look past them, it gets a lot weirder. And the story of the New 52 has a lot of highs, but also has a lot of lows and a lot of regrets. And the Polygon article does a great job of representing that by speaking with creators and letting them tell the story of the New 52. I'm not going to go into all of that because it is a lot. And I think if you really want to know um, what happened with the New 52, reading this would be a great way to get um, a lot of you know, the truth from the people who were there. Uh, which is fu- it's funny because I feel like Gre- um, Gail Simone started this article by doing a thread on the New 52 that all the creators piggybacked off that's of right. like a month yeah, ago. that's right. So, I've, yeah. yeah, I feel like this was already done. But, yeah, it's a great article. I think it's worth checking out. Um, I wanted to note something. And this is the, the actual conversation I want to have. And I'm using the New 52 as a vehicle for it. The, the, the thing that we all know about the New 52 that's really come to light in the years since its end is that editorial was behind a lot of what we saw. Whether you liked it or didn't, the New 52 as a concept was editorial driven. I explained already how Dan Didio wanted to marvelize the DC Universe. Mm. Um, and the creators were handpicked. A lot of the stories that they were telling were handpicked by the editors, or or if they weren't direct from the editors, they were very, very involved in the creation of the stories and what could and could not be done. Um, and that was good and bad. So mm. I wanted to talk to you about that fact. Do you think... That the a, a sweeping change like the New 52 or all new, all different Marvel or anything like that is something that editors should be driving? Or do you think that it should be driven primarily by the creators? The New 52 strategy worked and didn't work. There were successes and failures. So what do you attribute the successes and failures too. How do you break that down? I, boy, I think I would probably, I think I would have to break it down maybe even by, I can, you know, I can only say this from my perspective, but like perceived editorial control. And I yeah. guess what I mean by that is, like in the case of Scott Snyder and Batman, you know, they they saw the the talent that Scott Snyder had and when he brought the Court of Owls to to them, you know, the they sort of they were able to sort of help him shape it but also let him run loose with it to a certain degree. Yeah. Um whereas with uh, was it? I think it was Static Shock. Um, with okay. Mark Bernardin, I think that was something yeah, I was yeah, talking yeah. about fairly recently. Yes, he picked it up and he was shot down at every corner and couldn't even finish his run because of the the stranglehold that the editorial department seemed seemed to have. You know, yeah. from my perspective, anyway. 
but then I think of like sort of mid-tier successes like uh, like The Flash, I would say. Um, you know, Bucatello and, and Manipal's Flash. Like, it's really good. I really, really like it. Loved it. But, like, nobody talks about it. You know, so... I, I, I don't know what, what sort of... Um, you know, uh, editorial control. If it was just, you know, sort of they they said, okay, Bucatello, you're you're fairly new, you you're or you're fairly new on the scene. You seem to tell a good story. Let's just we want this run of the mill. Just tell a Flash story. Uh, make Barry Allen the Flash, and it worked. Or was it so editorial controlled he couldn't do anything? And succeeded despite that. Right. I I to I want to say the success came from the creators because you know despite the the sort of uh, you know chosen ones you know your Scott Snyder your Gail Simone your Morrison um, you know. They, they were able to tell the story and, and drive the character in a direction that, for the most part, worked. Whereas the creators who were strangled by editorial couldn't. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you say that because even the, the golden children, uh, like Scott Snyder, had editorial struggles. Uh, no- notoriously... The issue of, of Batman, I think it was issue five or six, the one where... The flip it. The maze, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. DC didn't want That's that. right. That's right. And they did it anyways, but they had a, a, a large fight about that. Um, and then DC, I told this story a few weeks ago, DC wanted to change the ending of the Court of Owls story. Right. And Scott said, no, like, rip up my contract then. Like, I'm not yep. with this. Yep. Um, so... I feel like it's a it's a little bit of both. I think that uh, DC had gold. They struck gold with the concept of the new Fifty Two. Um, it was exciting. It really, really was. It, like if you weren't there at the time, being a fan, like it was something special. Even if you didn't care for the idea, it still felt like a big deal. Nowadays, you get relaunches and stuff, and it's like okay, whatever, who cares? But at that time, it was still novel, and that felt cool. Um, but launching with 52 titles, that's just, that's nuts. That's a lot. That's a lot. They had an arbitrary number that if a title didn't sell more than 20,000 copies, it would get chopped. That's, that's, that's tough. But it's like you have 52 titles, like you're setting up some of these for failure. Even if you discount the fact that other comic book companies exist, right? So, like you, you yourself have fifty-two books. Yeah. People aren't going to buy everything. Some stuff's going to die on the vine. And I think it would have been a lot smarter to start small and build up, rather than start big and downsize. Because optically, that's not good. Doesn't make the creators feel good. 
Um, and I, and you know, you, you're trying to build and set up stories, but then you have to cancel this book because it didn't sell 20,000 copies. But as it turns out, it featured a character who you needed to tell stories with to get to where you were going. So it's just like, it becomes so complex, right? Um, and something that Scott said that really stuck out to me in this oral history, um, article that really is the sticking point is that editorial didn't have a strategy for what should happen Beyond year one. That's. And there wasn't a strong overarching storyline other than the Pandora thing, which most people I feel were confused. Yeah. Anyway, it fizzled away. Like I remember seeing that and seeing that that was the thing. Watch Pandora. Look for Pandora. She was in all the events. Uh, For what? Like. Yeah. And that's the problem when you don't have creative I don't want to say creative people because I'm not trying to say that Dan Didio and them are not creative. What I'm saying is that when you don't have, when the story is being dictated by editors sometimes they can have the great concept but not necessarily the follow through not necessarily the ability to say okay well here's the emotional angle or here's the, you know like you needed to have a group of creators who come in and say, well, this is this is how this makes sense narratively beyond the concept. You know, this is how this connects to the actual characters on an emotional level. Um, this is the payoff. Mm. The New 52 didn't have a payoff. And that's the problem. It was an editorial initiative that had no creative payoff. Yep. And so for me, as someone who read it for the entire time, in the end... Other than Forever Evil, um, I don't know what I was supposed to get out of it. I don't I don't have like a ton of fond memories about those books. I loved Batgirl. I loved Batman. Green Lantern was cool. Love Forever Evil. Justice League War, I think it was called, um, was all right. The one where the one where um, Pandora sort of really got into the fray and the Justice League were they learned about the 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 other the evil Justice League or whatever at the end of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was in... Doom? Yeah, yeah. Doom, I think it might have been called. I don't remember. In any event, those things were cool. Those are moments that I recall. But by and large, it's, it was all stuff. Yeah. And that's the problem. And, you know, I think, I think it also goes... There's a certain element of superhero books in that and the way Marvel and DC, uh, you know use their property it's like you know if you have a direction that means there's an end point at a certain degree right and eventually you know that all has to be reset which you know they're well versed in doing but you know with ddo's whole thing was making continuity and making history but when you do that like things again things end and if you can't have things that end you know uh, everything can't be continuity unless you're dc in 2021 exactly it it's it's a it's weird because 
theoretically, New Fifty Two didn't have to end. Like the branding, maybe, but you didn't. You didn't have to go back on, you know, making. You know, uh, so like they made Superman younger. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have to do those things. You didn't have to. You know, like they they switched around so many things. They brought back old Superman and like just so many things that they that they reverted from the new 52 that could have just been the canon. Yeah. And that wasn't the ultimate decision. And again, those things are coming from editorial, not the creators. Well, another thing is it was the new 52 for 10 years or whatever. Yeah. Like how long is it new? Well, what it was no, it wasn't the new 52 for 10 years. It was the new 52 until rebirth. Well, I mean even still which was it was in 2016. It was the new 52 for way too long is my is my point. Like if you know, maybe the first year. Okay, this is the new 52. This is the engine. This is continuity. And it's cut stop calling it that. You know, this is yeah. this is your base. This is it from now on. The new 52. And never mention it again. This is continuity. Right. Yeah. I don't know. That bugged the shit yeah. out of me the whole time it was a thing. It, it's sad. And, like, I'm desperate to go back and read those those books with, you know, my 2021 brain yeah. um, to see what I feel about them now. And we're going to do something eventually mm. uh, because it, it just has it just has to happen. But I, I think the New 52 is an absolutely fascinating study of what happens when editorial decides to completely revamp everything about what their comics are. Yeah. And that's what happened. And it succeeded in some ways and it failed in others. Write in with your New 52 memories because, you know, we just shared some of ours. Uh, we would love to know what you guys think about the New 52 in retrospect. Mm. Well, we just discussed a a an editorial driven upheaval. Let's talk about a uh, a creator driven upheaval. Uh, so, Jonathan Hickman spoke about his time with the X Men in an article with AIPT Comics. They do something uh, called X Men Monday, which they do every Monday, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they talked about basically kind of like, you know, in, in light of Inferno number one coming out, what are everyone's memories of Hickman and stuff like that? Benjamin Percy, Teeny Howard, Leah Williams, Jerry Duggan, they all shared their thoughts. That was all cool. Read that if you'd like to. Uh, we've got the article linked. But what I'm what I was here for and what I want to talk about is the interview that they actually did with Hickman himself. And. He talks a lot about what his feelings are about, you know, kind of what happened with the X-Men line. Um, And he said some really interesting things. So the biggest thing I think that I wanted to uh, jump on that he said was when he talked about kind of. why things ended up the way that they did and what went wrong and what went right. Um, So here, here we go. Uh, He was asked, do you think the writer's room concept was more successful than what you expected? And he said, 
I think it worked in a lot of ways that were intended. I think there were also things we got wrong or could have done better. I think if our only goals were a cohesive line, integrated storylines, and a profitable line of books for the company, sure, for the most part, it worked out great. And while I do think those are the most important things, for it to be truly successful, I think we needed a couple more to go right. One, I believe we needed a broader aesthetic, a bigger artistic umbrella. That's something we perhaps could have controlled a little better. Two, I think we needed to maintain a more relentless velocity. Narrative rhythm is good, necessary, I think, in the individual titles. But with a line as big as ours, the whole thing still has to feel like a freight train. The pandemic really screwed us there. And along with other complications, it's taken us until now to get everything back on track. So, while some might think that's one we deserve some grace on, I'd probably argue that grace isn't something you get to ask for in a financial exchange. But overall, I think it's worked well. I'd give us a B refreshing uh refreshing change of uh uh pace with that uh that grace isn't something you can ask for with a financial <laughs> financial exchange really appreciate that I, I had the same reaction i was like wow that is completely true like thank you um i agree with every single thing he said i think the artistic angle is really interesting um because Something we commented on a lot was the way it felt like things were um, things were trying to be or or you know imitate or or be that sort of Pepe Larraz Marta Gracia look and feel to a certain degree. And I think it's interesting that sorry, did he want more variation? Or did he want more, I guess, better in that style, do you think? I I interpret what he said as uh, meaning that he wanted more. Because a broader aesthetic to me means that he wanted it to be able to look and feel different depending on what book you were reading. Yeah, yeah. A, a bigger artistic umbrella. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I just, yeah, I find that really interesting, and I think I, I genuinely think that would have helped a lot, actually. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I the art of these books was never really my biggest sticking point. I think there were some books like Marauders that suffered from trying to do the Pepe Larraz, Marta Gracia look. Mm-hmm didn't really have the creators for that um and i also don't think that that look fits every book like yeah. x-men proper didn't look like that and it didn't need to uh when it was drawn by uh Lanil Yu. like Lanil Yu does Lanil Yu. Yeah. um so yeah i guess i i guess i agree although that wasn't one of my bigger problems sure um what he said about the narrative rhythm and the velocity I think he's completely right. And I'm so glad that he knows that that was a problem because we complained here a lot about the fact that the books felt like they would just go through dry spells Mm. where nothing would happen. And that was absolutely true because it felt like they were waiting for something to happen in Hickman's books that they could take and deal with. Yeah. And that was a big problem. Um, and it, 
according to him, a little later on, uh, he says that, you know, we're getting to some of the things that were supposed to happen that got put on hold due to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty interesting as well. Um, he talks about how there was supposed to be a Mike Carey uh, Children of the Vault book that we never got. Uh, he talks about how in Inferno, there was a lot of rogue character stuff that got taken out of the book, which really sucks. Because he just didn't have the page space. Yeah. Um, he talks about an Imperial Guard book that was supposed to happen. Um, yeah, we didn't, he says that, didn't even get sorry. to explore the space stuff very much. None of that Dang. came to be. And that's one of my biggest frustrations with the X-Line. And I talked about this on our reviews. There were so many things that were teased in Jonathan Hickman's X-Men uh, issues, mm. especially like the earlier ones before Ten of Swords, that never mattered. The old ladies, the Imperial Guard... None of that mattered. The brood, all irrelevant. And it's possible maybe that someone will tackle that stuff down the road, but none of it has has come to to be um, uh, relevant thus far. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan was was asked. Um, obviously, the ideas in there. Oh well, oh, I should start at the beginning. Multiple X fans wanted to know if we'll ever see your original three act structure for the X Men. Obviously, the ideas in there could still appear on the printed page, but is this something you could see yourself one day releasing, teasing in a newsletter, or eventually seeing print as back matter in a collection, or should X fans give up all hope? And he said, uh, there's no version of this where I'm putting plans in my back pocket to save for another day, or some great character beat that I'm holding on to and no one is allowed to use it, or the character until I get around to it. That's not what this is. Everything I have already done, everything I'm currently working on, and everything I had plans to do in the future belongs to the team. That was the point of having a room and a cohesive group of creators working together. I promise you'll see plenty of those ideas and plans executed in other books or amalgamated into broader concepts. The big questions and resulting conflicts I was getting at aren't disappearing from the line. Those things are baked in. They're inevitable in a lot of ways. It just won't be happening on a timeline that I can work on. Which is perfectly fine. The team is going to do great. If anything, I think some of them will flourish without me taking up all the oxygen in the room. I really hope I don't sound too prickly about these, about this, but these are my guys. I'm very fond of them, and they're doing a great job. Everything that was asked of them. And if I'm being completely honest, I'm kind of jealous of the things that they're getting ready to do over the next few years. The plans are amazing. That's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I I just, I don't know that I care to see another creator tackle the ideas that Hickman had. And I would say that if we were talking about pretty much any creator, because if there were his ideas, who is most likely to execute them the best? Him. Yeah, uh, but it also sounds like a lot of the big questions and plans weren't necessarily all his you know that was the point of him putting this room together you're right but the three-act structure that he initially pitched came about before we even knew what would happen after house and powers yeah like we knew about that before anything so at least that it was his concept yeah yeah i mean to me it just it just sounds like you know he he 
wanted to or was tasked with creating a new status quo for the X-Men. And he did, and yeah, he had plans. But, you know, the world happened. And now we don't get it. That's not quite true. The reason we're not getting the plans is because the the rest of the X team doesn't want to move forward. So Inferno is supposed to be Act 1's end. And the well see even that's not quite exactly correct. It's it's so murky. Mm. Basically Jonathan Hickman asked the the creative teams are you ready to move into phase two? And they said no. So Hickman said, okay, then I have to leave. Hmm. I'm going to tell the Infernal story and let you guys do whatever you want to do. And then when you're ready to get into act two, here is what act two is. And then when you're done with that, here's what act three is. Because Hickman, ah. his timeline for his contract with Marvel and the other work that he has planned to do with Marvel doesn't allow him to stay with the X-Men for longer than whatever timeline the other teams want to work on. So, yeah, go ahead. No, I that's interesting. I didn't know about that. The act. You you must have missed that episode of the show. We did it was like a month or two ago where we talked about this. Maybe that Hick- Hickman explicitly said, like, I was ready to push things forward and they didn't want that. That's insane. <laughs> like, yep. what? Yeah, that's why I'm so frustrated. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. Yes, yes. Okay, now I'm living that. Yeah, yeah. that sucks. <laughs> that really sucks. So hmm. we won't get any of that from Hickman, presumably. He's not necessarily saying I'll never come back, but he has said, like, I'm jealous of what they're going to get to do. And he's talking about as as if he's divorced from the X-Men at this point, other than the digital um, uh, Marvel Infinite thing. that Whatever he's he's doing doing there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. (sighs) That sucks. It does. Um I'm frustrated by it, and that's what that's what makes Inferno so bittersweet. Yeah. I'm excited for it; it's going to be cool. But Hickman not being at the forefront of that, I just don't know if I care what happens beyond the X beyond his uh, his time with the X Men. We know we're getting a um, a Victor Laval written Sabretooth book, mm-hmm. which is cool. Obviously, we haven't seen Sabretooth in a really long time. Um, we're getting the 10 Lives and 10 Deaths of Wolverine book in January um, that Hickman points out as is going to be a big deal in terms of like reshaping the line. And it does sound like things will get to a place where they will be exciting again post-Inferno in 2022. Mm. So cool, I guess, but it won't be with Hickman. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, you know, the thing... The thing to look forward to here really is the chance for, you know, other creators to shine or fall. I mean, you know, nobody wants to look forward to somebody falling, but, you know, uh, Ben Percy's Wolverine is strong. And 
you know, I think I I think you know, like uh, we said about the the first issue of uh, Trial of Magneto. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Leia Williams has got she's she's got it. You know, when when she needs to tap into it, she can really do it. Um, but then you know, That's, yeah. for me, for me, like Jerry Duggan didn't do anything for me either in his x-men run or the marauder the marauder stuff when this all started Mm -hmm. and that's not to say he'll be one of the ones that fall but like you know when you take hickman out of the room like he says he's not taking up all the oxygen so you know maybe we'll get to see sort of the original idea for the room and we'll get to see, you know, everybody moving and breathing in a way that it was originally intended to, just without Hickman. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to spend any more time on the show talking about how I feel about this because, you know, it, it is what it is. Now all I can do is read Inferno this week. I'm pretty confident it'll be good. And then hope that whatever comes from the X-Men line in 2022 is able to live up to the legacy that Hickman is leaving behind. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, something else that could be good. How about let's? How about we talk about Venom, Let There Be Carnage? You know, I was going to make a joke there, but you know what? I'm on board. It could be good. Well, it's only going to be 90 minutes. Fuck yeah, dude. That's already a high contender for me. can you believe that this movie is coming out next week october 1st that's that's pretty crazy i have so many things to do this week and i can't believe this is one of the (laughs) things i have to do that i only just remembered (laughs) indeed yeah um so it's coming out it's 90 minutes and the way that they're promoting this movie it's the same way that they promoted the first Venom, and it's so frustrating. They're teasing Spider-Man again. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they keep teasing the idea that Spider-Man will be some part of this movie. The big thing that Tom Hardy keeps suggesting and that Andy Serkis keeps suggesting is to stay for the whole movie and see the after credits. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Spider-Man will show up. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll connect. Don't worry. Notoriously, and this is something I've talked about here before, Spider-Man allegedly was originally filmed for an end credit scene in the original Venom. And Marvel forced them to pull it. Yeah, I think I remember that. So we're in the exact same place again that we were two or three years ago, whatever it was. They, it's probably the same. They probably didn't even film new things. It's probably the same <laughs> footage. <laughs> it could be. That wouldn't be a big surprise, no. uh, frankly. Um, I, I actually feel like this movie's not going to be very good. I'll be honest. I, yeah. Probably not. <laughs> 90 minutes. Uh, to me, that's not long enough to tell a, a complete story with... Introducing Carnage, introducing, um, uh, what's her name? Shriek. Not Scream. Shriek, thank you. Uh, you know, all these different things that they have to do. I just, they say they cut the fat and this movie's going to be like a train. 
and you know they're not going to take long to get to the big fight. Mm, okay, I don't know. We know. I think. I, I think a lot of the legwork has been done. Like you know, really, what we're looking to establish here is how Venom and Eddie are. Uh, now that they're one and they're you know together and you know that's the status quo they're living together and they enrich each other's lives or whatever i mean like even think about (laughs) maximum carnage like what do they need shriek is (laughs) shriek is a bad guy who screams and i don't know likes to kill people carnage is the same he's just a little bit tougher and looks cool what do they need I guess. 90 minutes might be um, too long. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. They're they're saying that this movie is a love story. Uh, and the, the love is between Eddie and the Venom symbiote. Yeah. Love which it. is a funny idea, I guess. But I don't know. I saw the first one. The first one was cool. I was excited for this. But the 90 minutes thing took me out of that and then the more i think about it the more i'm like wait this movie could be bad <laughs> oh, welcome to it man <laughs> but i guess that's my mistake is thinking about it i'm not supposed to think about nah. it i'm just supposed to pay my money and go watch the yep. movie it's a marvel with my brain off it's a marvel property with a guy with webs hey, hey shut up give me 20 bucks yeah just about mm-hmm. especially if i see it in imax um, and of course, there's the idea that there's going to be a Sinister Six uh, spinoff that will come from this, that the introduction of Spider-Man to the Venom universe will lead to a Sinister Six movie, even though we're getting the Sinister Six and Spider-Man 3, No Way Home. It's just so ridiculous. Like, Sony can't shut up yeah. about their plans. They've been talking about a Sinister Six movie for so long. We're never getting a Sinister Six movie. 15 years. Never happening. That we're getting Craven in the video game is insane. There will be a Sinister Six movie. No. You want to, you, you and me right now, want to bet? How much? Well, so this movie will not release for many years. Listen. But I will say, you will have time to save up this money. I'm saying, uh, uh, let's, 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 let's do. Five hundred dollars. How about that? <laughs> when you said when you said you will have time to save this money, I went, okay, a cool hundo. Nope. You want to do hundred? Five hundred dollars. But what's the timeline? All right, five hundred dollars. Yeah. What's the timeline? That's the big. That's the big thing. I say. I say okay. I say it has to be released. We have to go see. The Secret Six movie. Sinister? Okay. I'm going to see Secret Six, so I don't have to pay. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, for 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 it to be uh, real. But when? What's the timeline? I don't know. Whenever it comes out. If it doesn't come out, then like if we don't go see it, five years? Nope, no deal. 
What are you thinking? No deal. Ten years? You ten think years. we're gonna be here doing this for ten years? I could. It, it, we don't even have to be doing it. It could be off the air. You will owe me five hundred dollars. <laughs> you think ten years? Yeah, I think I think within seven to ten years there will be a Sinister Six movie. I'm not willing to put five hundred dollars down on five years. I've been talking about this shit for fifteen years. Let's say seven. Fine. All right. Yeah. Okay. Deal. Now, now, what if the movie is announced officially, has a cast and all, but isn't releasing until after that seven-year window? Then I will. I will, We can have the leeway there if it's announced okay. and there's a cast. I would say the the official announcement and the cast has to be within the seven years. Done deal. But the 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 film can be after the seven years. So done deal. What are we talking here? September twenty twenty eight. Twenty twenty eight. Sounds good. Uh, put a fucking note in my calendar. Do that. Calendar reminder. I I will be five hundred dollars richer. No, I am. Not gonna happen. I am telling my future self: spend it wisely. Do something cool with that money. Uh, if drop it on your kids if you have them, whatever. Have a blast. I'm still gonna be paying my fucking student loans. <laughs> Sean owes me five hundred dollars. September twenty eighth. Yeah. No, I did the wrong one. September twenty. September twenty. Fifth. Just you wait, buddy. It's not. You better tell Jess to put that money aside right now, dude. I'm gonna be five hundred dollars richer. Bitch. <laughs> Go ahead. We don't have five hundred. We don't have one hundred dollars. That's why I said. <laughs> All right, you got you got seven years. God, it's not gonna happen. Pinch those pennies, I brother. Can't even fucking save three hundred fifty for a fucking Steam Deck. <laughs> All right, listen. <laughs> this podcast is not about your financial woes, okay? Since when? <laughs> All right. Uh, so before we move on to to the next subject, will Spider Man be in the end credits of Venom Two? No. You're saying no, Peter Parker, no Spider Man, nothing. A physical presence or a mention. They could mention him all day. They can't though. That's the thing. If they do that, that completely that changes the game. Even a mention changes the game. It's never happened before. I don't think it does. What it did? Does. It's never happened. What was the? Was there an after credit sequence for Venom? Yeah. What was it? Was it? the tease of Carnage? Oh, is that it? Yeah. I still say no. I still say no. I bet we get a tease for uh, Morbius. Um, I'm gonna say yes. I think um, I don't think No Way Home is gonna be enough. I think I think we're building No Way Home up too much. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, you know, uh, we're talking about all these all these different characters. We're talking about you know all these Marvel characters, whether it be the X Men, Spider Man, Venom. Well, these characters were created by people, and the families of those people want some of those characters back, and Disney is not ready to let them go. 
So we're going to be talking about that in our main topic, Disney and Marvel versus the families of the creators of your favorite characters. This is a complicated issue, and a lot of people are talking about it. Um, of course, we're talking about Marvel. Um, well, the big the big headline, I think, is that Marvel is suing. Um, they, they, they have filed a lawsuit um, to try and prevent their characters from, from getting uh, taken. Well, the characters that... It's even the language of it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like They're trying to retain the rights to utilize these characters. Um, so uh, Steve Ditko... His his estate, I guess, uh, filed copyright termination notices for Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Uh, he's not the his estate is not the only one to do that. Uh, there there have been quite a few uh, here recently. Um, Don Heck, Don Rico, Gene Colan, um, Larry Lieber. Who, of course, is uh, Stan Lee's brother. Mm. Stan Lee brother. Stan Lee's brother is alive still. He's eighty nine years old, and I didn't know this, but apparently he worked for Marvel as well. He worked on some early Thor stuff, and 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 I think Hulk and different characters like that. Wow. Um, but uh, so he is suing, um, and their attorney, Mark Toberoff, is representing all these different creators. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's not the first time that Toberoff has been involved in this type of case. Uh, Toberoff actually represented Jack Kirby when Jack Kirby was going after Marvel in uh, 2010. As well as Siegel and Schuster. And Siegel and Schuster, yes. And in the case of Siegel and Schuster, so they settled out of court. Yeah. Uh, both times. And the reason we see now... Uh, at the end of anything with Superman in it or at the beginning, whatever, it always says by special arrangement uh, with the families of Siegel and Schuster or whatever it says, that is due to that's the result of them settling out of court. Uh, And so uh, Marvel did sue to try to prevent the loss of characters like Thor, Iron Man, (laughs) Spider-Man, Black Widow, Captain Marvel, Blade, um, all these characters would be lost. And so Marvel is suing to uh, basically make the argument that this is not a lawsuit that should be seen by a court because these creators were workers for hire. They're utilizing the work for hire uh, uh, rule to say that they can retain the rights to these characters in perpetuity because they were created for Marvel. Marvel did not... uh, Marvel did not license the characters so much as they were created by these creators for Marvel's use and ownership. That's the argument that that they are making on the Marvel end of things. Mm. Um, interestingly, the the lawyer that Marvel has uh, retained for this is Dan Petroselli, mm. who is actually the same lawyer that uh, represented DC. In the case of uh, of Superman with Siegel and Schuster. Oh, okay, cool. So we're already on the winning side. <laughs> now, um, everyone is is obviously speaking about this. It's a huge issue. Most people are saying that you know Marvel should keep the characters, 
And uh, obviously there's another side to that saying that that's ridiculous. How, how dare you side with the big multi-billion dollar company over these people who created these characters um, that didn't see even like one percent of all the money that has been made off of the these characters that they created that's the basic argument here from an emotional standpoint okay well buddy you picked the wrong pal to be on today i have (laughs) i have one mode and that's arguing emotionally and here's the problem i'm dumb as a rock so i have my stance i can't argue it without crying anyway and uh, so this is going to be a short main topic. Well, um, fair enough. <laughs> I, I think that from a, from a, like, I understand why people say that. I get why people say, you know, these characters should go with the, the estates of the creator of the creators who created them. I get that. Mm. Um, and we should also establish what this would actually mean. So, like, let's say that um, these estates were to win and these characters or Marvel were to lose the rights. It wouldn't mean that they could not use Spider-Man in a sense. Yeah. What it means is that they would not <laughs> they would not have the legal right without paying any money or without you know they wouldn't have the the ability to just use those characters they wouldn't have the ability to just use a character called peter parker who gets bitten by a radioactive spider-man a spider and becomes spider-man who wears a costume that is red and blue those things that make spider-man who he is they would not be able to utilize anymore basically um they wouldn't be able to control it they wouldn't yeah they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to control those things yes correct yeah yeah um so obviously that's bad for that's bad for marvel that's that's bad for uh for disney if that ends up being the case Mm. my thought is Hmm. from a legal standpoint which is the only part that matters because this is a legal issue is it true that these characters I know, lawyer. I know, but I'm, I have to ask the question. The people have to hear me ask it, okay? Is it true that these characters were created under work-for-hire deals for Marvel? Now, my idea, and again, I am also not a lawyer, is yes, they were. They were created for Marvel by these creators, without any ownership over them. So what legal basis is there for this argument? Notably, the Supreme Court almost stepped in in the argument, the Siegel and Schuster conversation. Yeah. Uh, Judith Ginsburg, I, I, that's her name, right? Am I crazy? Ruth. Ruth. Judith Ruth. Ginsburg. Ruth, Ruth, I'm sorry, Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Sorry. She expressed an interest in 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 looking into this um back when it was going on. And that actually spurred the the um 
the the, the settling out of court mm. to take place because DC and their lawyer did not want they, the Supreme Court's involvement. They know they wrong. <laughs> um. So yeah, man. Now that it's been laid out, I don't know that I feel like there is a legal basis for the argument. I just I don't think there is. I yeah I like I said I I genuinely I I don't I mean obviously you don't know but like I I genuinely don't I don't know um you know because like I I also you know sort of maybe to the other end of of your stance or whatever I also sort of get the work for hire thing um it pisses me off um and you know it's the problem with capitalism and you know the world Mm -hmm. um but that's the way it is Mm -hmm. um i i would be interested to know you know if these if if these guys were just like let's just make characters and make a comic book company what you know what documentation is there that says this character is owned by DC or whatever entity it was at the time. You know, if... Because, I mean, by the same right as, like, you know, Superman's created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, uh, Moby Dick was written by the guy who wrote Moby Dick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Give me a second. I'm a literature major. I know who that is. Mm-hmm. I've never read it, so I'm excused from knowing. I don't know who it is. All right. Uh, well. Uh, but, I mean, you know what I'm saying. You know, so, like, who, I, and I guess, I guess that, you know, if you take it from that point of view, like, does the publisher own Moby Dick and not that guy at this point? You know, what I, so yeah, my question is what, what documentation or whatever is there that Spider-Man belongs to Marvel dated, you know, 1963 or whatever when he was created? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that. I assume trademark rights. You know, I assume they have the trademarks. Yeah. If they, I, I mean, they have to. If they didn't have them, then they wouldn't. Anyone could do Spider-Man. In the sixties, though. So you're, you're saying when did they get the trademark? I, I mean, I I think there could be something to that. You know, because that the, then the whole argument about the creation, you know, is still up in the air. Right. I don't I don't know what the the trademark situation, the history of trademark is. So, I actually did a little bit of digging to find out some answers to some of the questions that are coming up here. Um and let me see if I can okay. Uh so um this is how this is how it seems to work. Um and this is in relation to work for hire creations, I guess. Um, 
Determining when a license or transfer can be terminated is concept. The basic rule for works created and assigned prior to 1978 is that termination can be effective any time within a five-year window that opens exactly 56 years from the date copyright was originally secured. So, if as in Siegel, a copyright was secured on April 18, 1938, the five-year termination window opened on April 18, 1994. But even if that window is missed, if the work was in its renewal term in 1998, a second five-year window opens 75 years after the date of copyright. Schuster's heirs are seeking to take advantage of this provision, having given notice of their intent to terminate in 2013, 1938 plus 75 years. If a work is first created or assigned after 1978, the termination can generally generally be effective anytime during a five-year window beginning 35 years after execution of the grant. 1978 is when they changed the laws on that. Okay. So in the case of Amazing Fantasy, which is where we first got Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy 15, mm -hmm. uh, that's 1962. So uh, five... Uh, 55 years to that would be 2018. And the, the window finishes in 2023. Yeah. Yeah. So that is so. So and then um, with Dr. Strange, it's Strange Tales 110. So that's so that's the that's why the window has opened now. And that's why they're doing this now. I guess it, by that logic, it's been around a while, right? Yeah. Hmm. Man, I don't know. So, th th and this this next part is from a bleeding cool article that I'm looking at. Uh, if Patrick S. Ditko is successful against Marvel in terminating copyright, this does not mean that Marvel Comics would have to stop publishing Spider-Man or Doctor Strange. They would still own the trademark for both. So it's copyright versus trademark, I see. But elements from the two comics cited here could not be used in current comics and films. That might be the Spider-Man and Doctor Strange costumes, the identities of Peter Parker and Stephen Strange, spider webs, magical incant incantations, their origins, and those of other characters such as the Ancient One, Aunt May, or Uncle Ben. In previous cases, the publisher has simply renegotiated their deal with the estate, which is why you now always see, by special arrangement with the family of Jerry Siegel, on every Superman, Superboy, or Supergirl appearance. That is what I think the ultimate answer to this is. Because quite frankly, what will happen to Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and Iron Man and Thor and all these other characters if the rights were to be transferred to the original creators' estates? Nothing. What are they going to do? M make Spider-Man movies? The estate of, of Steve Dicko does not have the ability financially to support making Spider-Man movies. They would control the destiny of the character. So I guess that's cool. Um, but they don't have, what can they really do with that? And also it's not Steve Ditko. So it's not like we're going to see all the amazing ideas that Steve Ditko has for the character that 
were never executed because he's not at Marvel anymore. Yeah. So really, this is not about the emotional aspect because the original creators are not involved. It's about money. What do the estates want to do with these characters? Ain't it always when somebody dies? Yeah. They want to make money Mm. with these characters, right? Would you agree to that? Is that out of bounds? Yeah, both sides. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so because of that, I don't feel like emotion has a place here. And so my answer is a simple one. Pay them. Yeah. Yeah. Pay them. I think, I think, I really think this is an extension of the... You know, like the Ed Brubaker Winter Soldier conversation, yeah. like taken to exactly. you know uh, uh, the next level. Pay them, pay your creators what you what they're owed. Yeah, it ain't hard. <laughs> Just recognize the talent that got you here, and you know maybe send them a little more than a five thousand dollar check every time a movie comes out. Yeah, what shame is there? In the acknowledgement, both financially and in everywhere that these characters appear, that they were not created by the business that is called Marvel Comics. Mm. That business involves people who worked on the books. Yeah. If you pay them and if you acknowledge them, they're not going to bother you. So from a disconnected divorce from emotion or moral responsibility, if you just pay them, they'll go away. Right? Yeah. Like, and that is a lot easier than, you know, a, say say you send Steve Ditko, uh, his estate, you know, a cool mill every time a Doctor Strange film comes out. That's, that's not unreasonable. I don't think it is. Those, you I know, don't... those films make how much money? Yeah. If a fraction, if a if a percentage point, or even not even a percentage point, a portion of a percentage mm-hmm. point was owed to the estate every time that one of these characters appeared in a movie, Marvel would feel none of that, and the estate and the children of the children mm-hmm. would have better lives. And by the way, they go. wouldn't bother you. I guess I guess the then the argument becomes, you know, what is the appropriate percentage point? That's to be that's to be argued in court. That's yeah. to be that's to me. That's what the issue is. Because I again, I don't think that these estates have plans for Spider Man that they're going to be able to execute. Yeah, that's going to keep the the character is where he is because of Marvel. That cannot be denied in terms of their ability to be a marketing machine and to get that character to greater heights. Yeah. But if you don't have the character to do that with, then it never happens. Yeah. So both sides. So pay them. That's it. Yeah. Marvel didn't create Spider-Man. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko did. Yeah. And even Stan Lee is, I mean, (laughs) um, but yeah, it's people. People are at the center of everything. And that's the problem with corporate law. Everything. (laughs) You know, in 1918 or whatever the fuck that, you know, America decided that corporations are people. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, when uh, the last time Jess and I were in America before we left for New Zealand. So this was 
2016 or whatever, we went to the, uh, we were in Philly and we went to the, um, what is it, the Constitution Museum that's there? Okay. And she saw like the whole like timeline of America and she was like, this is insane. Because <laughs> like that, that point, that point that I just said is a point on the timeline legitimately like it's in the museum as like a revered thing that you know can never be erased or whatever it's handed down from god that's insane (laughs) it's sickening it is i i don't disagree at all and listen i'm not a heartless piece of shit okay i'm not marco i (laughs) I'm going to say I, I am. Care, <laughs> I care about the fact that these people did not earn what they should have yeah. based on the fact that they created these characters. Not by law. They're not owed it by law. Um, but, you know, I think you, 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 know, you do right by the people who do right by you. I don't think it's more complicated than that. No. And so because of that, I would love to see them get money. But I also really still want to see Spider-Man movies. That part I could leave. Like I want to see Spider-Man comics where he's a part of Marvel and can interact with Captain America and all that jazz. I still want all that. And I don't think that we have to lose that. Yeah. And I don't think that wanting that makes you a bad person. Stay off Twitter because that's all you're going to see on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and I don't think these families are bad people for wanting what, you know, they're owed. You know, like they don't want you to lose Spider-Man either. Yeah, it's not. It, 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 it's so. It's so like above that, right? Yeah. It's so above the level of how you feel about the characters, right? It's about the money that's owed. It's about these deals that were made so so long ago, right? Um, it's about all of that over a cigar and a handshake, like in a lot of cases. And you know what? When Ed Brubaker's estate tries to do this. Uh, you know, from 2000, whatever, 2004, five or six, mm-hmm. whenever the Winter Soldier was created, add 35 years to that, plus five, they're going to come for Marvel too. Ed might be alive for that. I don't know. But yep. they're going to come for Marvel. And Marvel's going to have to deal with this again. Yep. And again, when the creators of, you know, uh, uh, Miles Khan. Morales, Kamala Khan, and again, and again, and again, and again, oh, yeah. just End it by paying the creators what they are owed. That's it. You think Bendis will go hard in the paint? Or are they paying him? You think they're doing right by Bendis? That's a great question. It, I, I really don't know. It seemed, To me, it seems like he's really got his, um, his stuff sort of figured out. I think Bendis comes from a, 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 a group of creators who were a little bit smarter in how they approached yeah. their deals. Uh, and knew what was up because Bendis, by the way, has been was essential yeah. to those early writers' rooms and creative meetings behind the Marvel movies. Bendis was a part of that group. Yep. You know, Bendis has his hand in so many different cookie jars as it relates to Marvel properties. Yep. So yeah, I could see that, and that's something that should always be. Yep. Marvel, Marvel, and DC. Should do right by these creators. 100%. I'm never going to argue against that. But I will say 
that by law, as it appears to me, non-lawyer Sean, mm. Marvel doesn't necessarily owe them anything. By law. And that's by law. That's stupid. Those are the breaks. What? Don't mean I have to like it. No. I don't even like it. But Marvel does. Pieces of shit. <laughs> and you know what, too? My last point. Disney has been fighting this battle yeah. for their own properties. Properties that they basically stole. Like, and, and, and I would argue in the case of Disney, it's even worse. Like the Little oh, yeah. Mermaid and all those. A lot of those things are not, like, they're based on, like, folklore and fairy stuff like tales, that yeah. fairy tales and stuff that, that that's like was public domain as mm-hmm. far as i'm aware and then disney like was like oh this is a great story let's take it yep. do our story and then copyright this how does that work and that's why they're making all these movies now by the way oh yeah. all these live action oh yeah to, to retain the rights yep to something that they basically stole that's Suck that shit. that's different yeah no that's not really different. I think it is because the Disney had no involvement in the original creation of those things. Yeah. Whereas Marvel did. Yeah. You'd think they'd, Marvel would use the. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that just in case they, uh, they're listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you would think that Marvel would be able to use the Disney lawyers given that they're sort of Disney's biggest thing. You know? Well, I think they they probably went with this this guy they went with because he has history with it. He's got losing history. And by the way, I think Disney's the one being sued. He doesn't have losing history. When did he lose? I mean, they they, they, se- they, they settled they, out of court. He lost. That's what's going to happen here. By the way, that's lawyer speak for he lost. No, I've seen I've seen Boston Legal and other lawyer <laughs> shows, Law and Order. They're going to settle out of court here, too. It's yeah. not worth it for Marvel to go in front of a judge and in front of a jury and deal with not well, you know, and deal with all of that because they could theoretically maybe lose. Yeah. Right. That's not worth it. Um, and for the air, for the estates, it's not worth the money sink. It's going to be to go through this battle. Yeah. So, of course, they're going to settle out of court. Yeah. No Disney question. will never Disney will never ever let this result in a loss for them. They will drag this out for 10, 15, 20 years and ruin the estate. That's what happens, by the way. Yep. That's what happens. So, yeah. I think it's better for all parties involved if we can just pay these people what they do what they're due and come up with a system going forward that sees all these creators paid in perpetuity mm-hmm. for their for their stuff going forward. Absolutely. And maybe even retroactive. Yeah, fuck it. We're here. Because one thing that which by the way, we haven't even really had a disagreement this entire time. Um, but one thing I'm sure we do agree with is that I'm dead tired of seeing stories about creators who need GoFundMe's or die on penniless in bed. Yep. Like the one who created Rocket Raccoon, whose name yep. I'm unfortunately forgetting yep. right now, that went through hell. Like, no, those people should be paid. Yep. I want to see them paid. Yep. Is it Marvel's responsibility from a legal standpoint? No. We get that. I'm the first one to say it. But I want to see these people paid. 
because I do love their stories and I love their characters. Especially, especially if you're going to tout a character who, whose whole thing is great power, great responsibility. Like you're just going to fuck all the people like that. Like you have great power, use it responsibly. Like, come on. It's a good point. It's a good point. And we'll leave it there. I'll give you the last word. What are your thoughts, listeners, about that subject? Obviously, it's been a hot topic, so we had to cover it here. Um, But there are a lot of people who don't feel the way Kale and I felt on this subject. There are a lot of people who feel vigorously that Marvel sucks shit and should lose the rights outright and be bankrupt. And there are people who feel like they don't give a shit if the the Siegel and Schuster, or well, in this case, Ditko and Lee estates, uh, are penniless. They want Spider-Man. Where do you lie? Write in and let us know. Hit us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. We do post occasionally. Um, Hmm. (laughs) Listen to our review shows every single week. Wednesdays for image stuff. Thursdays for everything else. I I can promise you we'll at least be reviewing Spawn for image and Inferno for Marvel and DC and everything else. That's, That's a surefire bet. Uh, listen to our low book club, which is going to be dropping on Tuesday. If you're listening to this beyond Tuesday, it's already out. Give that a listen. I am so proud of it. It would mean a lot to me if you guys checked it out. Uh, I, I really I stand by what we did there. And check out What If or What If We Watch What If. Uh, we're rounding out towards the end of that series issue or episode seven just dropped. So we've got three to go, I believe, and we'll be done with that series. That's what Wikipedia says. <laughs> join our discord we love whenever you guys come hang out with us it's it's a great time and uh let's do the plugs kale you're first up you know i always thought the host should go last not because the host is the most important but because everybody else is the most important and so hmm. i always go last but when other people host the show they go first no matter what I think I think we keep the order actually, <laughs> just the the one you've established. Well, oh, you think it's because of order? Because I'm referring to Pete going first when he's those. I I always put Pete first because he uh, because that's the order you established. When I when like Pete's gone, I always do him first and then me, and then Phil okay. and Marco are, are in there somewhere. If I weren't the host of the show, I would make myself last. Whenever. I was the host of the show. Hmm. I'm referring to Pete making himself first last week, which I was dying <laughs> laughing about. Like, dude, please. But <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Kale. Uh, well, for that matter, you can find uh, loud underscore Pete at loud underscore Pete. <laughs> he's uh, he's got Nintendo did a uh, a Nintendo drop a direct, and it was pretty good. I'm not mm. mad. I didn't like it. It was fine. It was okay. There's been worse. Yeah. Um, still no Nintendog, so I don't know how that Nintendog's uh, podcast is going to uh, pan out, but if we know Pete, he's going to keep trying. We got to hurry up and get on that. Yeah. Um, he's doing flip screen now. That's their new big thing. They'll be talking about that Nintendo Direct over there, um, so go check that out. You can find his band, Long Friend Time Friend, somewhere. They're on Twitter as a long friend time friend i guess um and and see here's the thing about me putting p first i don't know his plugs so <laughs> you don't know your plugs i listen i spell mine out that's true 
Why don't you do that? All right. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Toto in Tow. That's T-O-T-O-I-N-T-O-W. You can find my work at KaleWard.com. That's C-A-L-E-W-A-R-D.com. There you go. Uh, I made a song for Phil's. You can find Phil at C-Y-B-O-R-G-B-E-B-O-P. There you go. And Marco's I've never figured out. Uh, at Mr. Marco Animoto, hit him up to talk about. Hit him up for his thoughts on, um, monogamy. Uh, monogamy. There you go. Yeah, just ask him uh, what he thinks about that. So- soaking. Ask him what he thinks about soaking, monogamy, and polygamy. That's all I'm gonna say. Love it. As for me, you can follow me only on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Soapbox. I anticipate some hate from my comments earlier about Barbara Gordon. Um, I stand by what I said, except if it's determined that I'm ableist because that's not what I want to be. Um, I don't feel like I am, does that, but I am not the determiner of that. Does that mean you want to be disableist? <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> I can't keep up with all this shit. Uh, I have no problem though with disabled people. Um, at all, and I just wanted to put that out there on on behalf of them. Thank you, because my glasses. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> fine. <laughs> I gotta go. I gotta. I gotta. There, there's a <laughs> recover from that one. <laughs> I need. I need to take a, a a class on how to do this, like how to be, you know, PC or whatever. Like you know how like celebrities they get they get the rundown on how to you know, be soulless in interviews. I got to do that. Yeah. I got to do that. So I'm going to go. But uh, <laughs> with that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Maybe. If people still want to hear my shitty takes. Oh, they don't. You're right. <laughs> <laughs>